uh, as we get to Revelation 15, um, it's important to remember that our expectations uh, for how a Bible passage is going to communicate truth are really important. So let me give an example. Uh, many of us come to the Bible always hoping and expecting to find the Apostle Paul. Here's a very clear statement of the truth, and here are some practical, tangible life applications for you. Uh, that's probably the easiest uh, parts of the Bibles to read. Statements are clear. There, there are some hard parts, of course, but, but there are clear, tangible applications. Other parts of the Bible are a little harder. They're narratives. And in these narratives, like the Gospels and like the Old Testament, authors are communicating uh, through the stories. The characters and the plots are telling you what the author wants to know. Here in Revelation, we have maybe the most difficult kind, especially because it's so contrary to our expectations. Uh, Revelation is not a chronological story. It doesn't uh, progress to this plot or climax. It is certainly not like the Apostle Paul, where he makes clear statements of the truth. Uh, that's not really what John's intending. Um, I think it's a little bit different. What we, what we get in Revelation is more like watching an artist paint or draw. And if you've never done this before, I just encourage you to go on a YouTube channel. Uh, maybe, maybe do the Bible Project. They have these little videos where they draw, but watch someone draw. And what will happen is at first, all you see are lines and circles and shapes, or maybe a splotch of green or red over there that you know is red or green, but you're not really sure what it's doing. Uh, it takes a long time to get the final picture. And Revelation's been like that. And we'll see that the next uh, four weeks, in fact, the, the entire rest of this book, Revelation 15 to, 20 to 22, is all going to describe the main big point of this book from different angles. But what we've done up until now is we've gotten the lines, and circles, and the little splotch of green, and we're going to see it all come together in Revelation 15 and 16. Let me just, I'll give you a little background, we'll explain. If that doesn't make sense, hopefully it will in a minute. But uh, Revelation 1, we see a vision of Jesus. Revelation 2 to 3, we see seven letters to churches in the Roman Empire. We see visions of God's throne room. We see six seals, which you, if you weren't here, these are uh, probably historical events, judgments in the, at the end times. Uh, we see the seventh seal and a vision of the safe church. We see six trumpets, which again are these judgments. Notice the pattern of vision and seals, right? You'll see that. Um, last couple of weeks, we've seen the visions of the dragon or the devil's war and the beast or the Antichrist reign. And now what's going to happen in Revelation 15, 15 to 16? It's really important to understand before we read, all right? All of this, all of these visions and seals are going to come together in Revelation 15 to 16. We're going to see imagery. We're going to see... Uh, truths. We're going to see all sorts of, it's all going to come right here. And we're going to get this picture of God's glorious end times rescuing judgment. And then we'll see it for the rest of the book from three or four different angles. So that, that's what's going on in this passage. So a couple things before we read. So first of all, if you're new or haven't been following along, a lot of the images we'll see this morning are not new. John assumes that we've, we know what he's doing. Uh, so I'm not going to talk through every single one because we'd be here for three or four hours. Uh, but there will be a Q&A time after the lesson that you can ask questions if you have a specific uh, one about a verse. Uh, but secondly, uh, whether you've been at every lesson or none of them, uh, the point of this passage is quite clear. And that is that God's judgment and wrath at the end of time is a good and glorious 
And if you can't receive that right now, if that's something that you might be embarrassed about or frustrated with the Lord about, let's open this text and see if we can't have our hearts changed. So Revelation uh, 15 through 16, we'll read both chapters. These aren't super long chapters, but I encourage you guys to carefully follow along. Uh, Revelation 15, we'll start in verse 1, go all the way to the end of 16. Hear God's word. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowls on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One. Who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl in the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. They are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And this seems to be the words of Christ. He says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and see, be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. 
seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God with the plague of the hail because it was so severe. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning as we read this passage and talk about it that we would not be able to do so without trembling and fearing before you and longing to be freed from this and just grateful and thankful that if we're in Christ this has already been poured out on him so Lord give us a wisdom and understanding and most of all just humility to, re- to receive what you've said this morning I pray that in Jesus name Amen. so the conversation was going really well and then I told him that I was a pastor and he almost cussed me out right there in Starbucks. I had met this gentleman, and uh, just kind of one thing for me, so I'm a pastor, I don't really know a lot of non-Christians, and so uh, whenever I am in public places, I'm very intentional uh, about getting to know the people around me, trying to build relationships just in the the places I go. And so uh, this happens a lot. I'll I'll go to a coffee shop and meet someone, just kind of try to get to know them, and if the Lord provides opportunities, kind of seek to have a spiritual conversation. And oftentimes they go, well, um, this particular gentleman, Uh, things were going well. I found out he was a writer. He asked me what I did for a living. And for me, that's kind of an easy in. I'm a pastor. Uh, This time, however, it was not a weirdness-free way to have a spiritual conversation. The, The look on his face, the moment I said that word, you could tell that what he wanted was just to eliminate me from the earth, to remove my offensive lifestyle and vocation from his life. And he said some very uh, choice things to me. He actually apologized later. But, and if I could do the conversation over again, I probably would have just said, man, I'm, I'm sorry you've had a bad experiences with Christians because that's obviously what's going on here. He's uh, obviously had some bad experiences. And I'm still praying for him, and I still see him sometimes, and I try to serve him. But, and I have hope for him. You know, The Lord can do powerful things. But let's think carefully about something. What if we lived in a world where this gentleman at Starbucks could have me eliminated from the earth? What if we live in Revelation 13 and 14, this end times age is coming that we've, we've seen where there is an evil world government that persecutes and kills Christians where the peoples of the earth are finally giving opportunity to what they, what they want to do, to worship the evil one, to destroy God's people. What if we live in a world like that? And in the spirit, with love for this man and with boldness, I open my mouth for Jesus and he goes and finds the secret police and they have me tortured, imprisoned, and killed. How would you respond to that? Now, you might have a lot of responses, but one of them, I bet, if that really happened, if your pastor gets murdered by a man who never repents, one thing that might happen is you would be much more okay with God's judgment on him at the end of time. Your heart would be a lot more softened to the fact that God's end-time judgment, 
especially on people who live in unrepentance for their entire lives. It's a good thing. It's a glorious thing. And I think what's happened in Revelation so far is John has developed this progressive picture. And he's given us a context for God's judgment. And the context is the world going to where it's wanted to go for all of history, but hasn't gone yet. This age where there is this worldwide, cultural, nationwide rebellion against God. And it's in that context where the little seeds of evil in every, everybody's hearts are full grown. It's that context where we can see this glorious picture of God's judgment. So we'll see uh, three key truths that I think will help us receive this this morning. First, God's wrath and judgment flows from and reveals his glory. It flows from and reveals his glory. Second, God's wrath is deservedly terrible. It's deservedly terrible. And third, it rescues and delivers his people. So first, let's see that it flows from and demonstrates his glory. Just If you're wondering what I mean when I say that God's wrath flows from his glory, what I mean is that it flows from the nature, from his nature and character. That God's glory is the love and the beauty and the radiance that flow from the Father and the Son and the Spirit. When God appears in the scriptures, he he bowls people over with the brightness of his presence. And in this passage, we see that God's end times wrath and judgment flows from his beauty and glory. I'll I'll give a few things that will help us see this. And again, reading the whole book is helpful here. But uh, notice, we are back in God's throne room. Uh, Verse 2, we see what appears to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Uh, This this sea of glass first appears in Revelation 4 when we see God sitting on his throne being worshipped. Notice, just like in the throne room then, God is surrounded, again in verse 2, by those who had conquered the beast, the saints. They've most likely conquered him through dying. Again, they are singing to God, just like they did in the throne room. Where, what do we see in the throne room? We see God's glory. But notice, second, there's all this imagery here that's very difficult if you don't read your Old Testament. Verse 5, we see the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven. Uh, this refers back to the Exodus days and the Joshua days when God's Old Testament people had a, a literal physical space where his presence was. They had a tent of meeting where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the high priest would go, where Moses would go, and they would meet with God and actually see his tangible glory. So we're, we're looking back to that. There's this place in heaven where there's this particular presence of God. Notice again in verse 16, uh, chapter 16, verse 1, there's a loud voice coming from the temple. All right, now we go to the next stage of Old Testament history. At one point, God's people built a temple where his presence dwelt. And this voice from the temple is telling the angels to go pour out the earth, the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So again, notice God's presence and his glory fills this final judgment. It's not like God's judgment is this appendix to his character, this asterisk that just so happens to happen. No, no, his his presence is full here. He's here in all his glory. Notice uh, second here, God's wrath and judgment will demonstrate his glory. One thing that might have been surprising uh, is you might wonder, why in the world, in verse 3, does Moses come up? 
what in the world? Moses is way back in Exodus. Why is he here? Um, well, anybody know what major event Moses was involved in? The Exodus. Did someone say the Exodus, all right? Uh, what happened in the Exodus? Well, God poured out his judgment and wrath upon Egypt to deliver and save his people. What did God say about the Exodus? He said, I will get glory over Pharaoh. I'll get glory over him. I'll demonstrate my character and power and love for my people through these judgments. Again, glory revealed by God's judgment. It's not some angry, look how strong I am, Thor-like glory. Notice what the saints are singing in verse 3. There's this song in verse 3 and 4. They are celebrating. Great and amazing are your deeds. Just and true are your ways. Very end, they say, your righteous acts have been revealed. The saints in heaven, they respond to this outpouring of God's judgment and wrath by recognizing that he's just and true and good. So God's judgment it flows from his glory and his presence, and it demonstrates his glory. Maybe I'll summarize by giving you an image that would be very hard to swallow. Uh, when, at the end of time, uh, God finally gives evil-doing humanity what they deserve, and he pours out wrath and judgment, there will be a worship service going on in heaven celebrating that. That probably does not sit well with you. God's people will be celebrating one day and glorying in his righteous judgment. And I don't think it's because they're bloodthirsty or they want vengeance. It's because what's going to happen is just like it's happened every time in the Bible when God pours out his judgment on an evil city that's oppressed and kills God's people, what's going to happen is God's people are going to see his glory. They're going to see his care for them. We'll see next week when we look at Babylon and this this picture of how evil the world is and how God judges her. What happens when God judges Babylon? He marries his bride, the church. In light of that, though, if the Bible is true, if this passage is true, if Revelation reveals truths about the world, please leave that American and not Christian embarrassment about God's wrath and judgment. Please leave that attitude that thinks that it's something we just shouldn't talk about, that we should just avoid. It's a good thing. Now hear me, I, I want to be, be real careful. I'm not saying we shouldn't tremble at God's wrath. We should. I'm not saying that we should not weep over the fate of lost people. We should. I'm not saying we shouldn't plead that God would save them and spend our lives helping them know Jesus. We should do all those things. The Bible commands us. But when people live in unrepentance and they curse God for their entire lives and he gives them the gospel and he gives them creation, he gives them uh, even end times judgment and they still refuse him, we should not be embarrassed that he judges them. So first we see that God's wrath flows from his glory, that it reveals his glory. Next, we will see that God's wrath is terrible, but it's deservedly terrible. 
We're going to walk through these seven bowls. And if you've been in this class, you've seen that this is the third set of seven judgments. Uh, I think John's, I think what John has done in this book is he's, he's just revealed three different aspects of these judgments. This is the final picture. I don't think there are 21 judgments. I think there's seven. But uh, what do I mean when I say God's wrath is terrible? What I don't mean is terrible as in my latte from Starbucks was terrible this morning, as in not up to par. When I say terrible, I mean this Category 5 hurricane heading towards my 1920s beach house is going to be terrible. It's going to be destructive. It's going to be horrible. That's what I mean. So let's just see this terrible and deserved wrath in these seven bowls. Look at bowl one, verse two. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. We'll see the terribleness and the deservedness throughout all of these bowls. Which got this uh, this this plague. Uh, is directly parallel to the sixth plague that was poured out on Egypt in the book of Exodus. Um, but notice this is a bodily affliction. This would be the, the entire world in some sort of horrible skin disease. You can't sleep at night. You're always itching. There is pus flowing from your body. I don't know if this is in the text or not, but I think the idea is that God wants humanity to feel their evil in the way their bodies feel. I'm not sure if that's there or not. But notice, what, if it's there or not, notice it comes upon the people who deserve it. Look at what it says here. Specifically, the sores come upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. If you read Revelation 13, these are people who are worshipping the devil. That's everybody at the end of the time. Right? They have participated in and enjoyed and gloried over the murder of Christians. That's who these people are. They're not innocent. They deserve it. We'll see it again and again. Both two and three. The seas and waters are turned to blood. This is parallel to the first plague in Egypt. And again, this would be awful and horrible. Uh, I looked on Google. It's kind of a weird thing to search on Google. I'm afraid they're going to like tag me, but I've worked. What would happen to you if you drank blood? And uh, again, I'm, I'm afraid they're going to like, like the FBI is going to like flag me and come get me. But anyways, uh, it would most likely kill you to drink blood. It, it would destroy your body. And, but it would also be just horrific. Again, I, I think the Lord wants humanity to feel their evil, to feel their spiritual grossness. Notice what the angel says, verse 5 to 7. Just, again, God is just. Why has why he brought the judgments in verse 6? They have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. God is being very just here. The fourth and fifth plagues are also connected by the sun. Um, in one of the plagues, the sun is given too much power. This is verse uh, 8 and 9. It's able to scorch and burn people. Imagine a world where the Charleston summer is the coolest day you can imagine, and the sun can actually physically burn you. In the fifth plague, the sun actually goes out. Again, it's on the kingdom of the beast, right? Not a righteous kingdom. But people are in such desperation, they gnaw their tongues in anguish. It's horrible. We don't want to go here. We don't want people we know to go here. But notice what happens in both of these instances. Verse 9, they curse God. They do not repent and give him glory. Verse 11, they cursed the God 
of heaven and did not repent of their deeds. This brings another layer to how just this wrath is. We looked in Revelation 8 and 9 about a month and a half ago, and what we see there is these, these end-time judgments, they are final warnings. The idea that, they, that the people wouldn't repent, that means that what God intends in these last judgments is for people to repent. He's giving them one more chance. The idea is, hey, God's already spoken in creation. He's already written his beauty and his love in the skies. They speak. He's already spoken in the scriptures. He's given people a guide. It's, it's reliable. He's spoken in his son. He's given people the gospel. They killed him. And he's spoken through his people in the age of the church. And what, what, have, what have they done? They've killed him. So God gives them one more chance. And to the very end, they resist him. The sixth bowl is probably the most interesting and difficult verse. We will see in uh, Revelation 19 that all the nations will gather for battle against Jesus. And it's not a very, uh, it's a very quick battle. Jesus opens his mouth and it's over. But um, in verse, uh, verse 12, we see, I think what's happening here is God allowing the nations, he's allowing them to be given over to their evil desires. Verse 12, the, the river is dried up to prepare the way for the king to the east. The idea is there are ways open for these evil armies to march. Verse 13, 14, confusing frogs, demon, demonic spirits. The idea, I think, is in the end of verse 14, they go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle. God allows the nations be given over to their desires. He allows them to be deceived. This seventh bowl is the final one. This is a bowl that represents the return of Christ. Every time the world ends in Revelation, it ends multiple times, maybe seven, eight, or nine, or ten. I haven't counted recently. They keep increasing every time I read the book. Anyways, um, but uh, every time the book ends, many times in verse 18, we see these flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. So this is the end here. But notice what happens at the end. Two things happen. All of creation participates. Lightning, thunder, earthquake, hail. But second, God remembers this great city, Babylon the Great. That's verse 19. And we'll see next week chapters 17, 18, and 19 talk about this great city, this epitome of rebellion and evil against God. Verse 20 shows us that the world ends. Islands flee from their place. No mountains were to be found. But again, don't you see? It's horrible. But the people who get it deserve it. In a passage so terrible in its implications, I've got to ask the question, are you heading to a day when you get what you deserve. Every person in the world who does not receive Christ by faith and live in submission to him heads here. And I think this is tricky uh, in the church. Um, it's possible to have a youth group experience with the Lord, but your lifestyle looks a lot more like Babylon. Or if you read your Bible and you're here in church and but the moment your life gets hard, you do what these people do. Essentially, you curse God, you resist him. It's easier than you think to slide into judgment. And I just want you to consider that God has given us this picture, this clear picture of where those little seeds of evil and rebellion in our lives right now lead to. 
They lead to a day when you get what you deserve. And he's doing so not to condemn you, not, not just to scare you, but to help you see what's important. Right? What's important is not that you get what you want right now in your phase of life. What's important is that on this day, you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. You're safe in him. You're with him. And, and the God who pours out judgment here has already poured it out on his son. God's made provision. If you're, if you're not a Christian, God's made provision for you in Christ. He's already everything here. Jesus has borne for your sake. Right? God did not want to pour out his wrath a second time. He did it in his son. So people could be saved, delivered from this wrath. And this morning, right, you can come wherever you are. But doing your own thing, kind of half-heartedly pursuing Jesus, you can come and receive life and be delivered from this. But if you are delivered from this, again, I, I want to say this, and I think we have to camp here. I think there are some places uh, in particular cultures where we need, to, we need the Lord to give us new categories of thinking. We need him to shape us. We've been so influenced by our culture. And by this idea in America that people deserve God's love, that somehow God is unjust to punish, we, the Lord needs to obliterate that in us. We need that obliterated in us. I, specifically, I just say, this is every time I do open Q&A, I get this question. What about, and they don't say this, but what about that poor, innocent person who's never heard of Jesus? This passage reveals to us that a poor, innocent person does not exist. Right? And the Bible calls us to go to that person. Right? I won't say that very clearly. Right? The Bible calls us to go to those people. But if you went, you know what would happen? They would resist you and maybe kill you or try. Now, we should still go, and we, we send missionaries. We believe, right? But, that, but that, that idea, this setting God up to be unjust with this poor person who never had a chance, right? that's, not, that's not reality. The reality is everyone in Revelation 15 and 16 has a chance, and they resist every chance to the end. So God is just. His ways are true when he judges. Don't question him. I was just reading this morning uh, in Luke 14. The one who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a good life verse, but... I'm just thinking about this passage. What we need, particularly, is to humble ourselves and our opinions and our thoughts about what is right before what God says. We need to receive it. Now, there's some tension here. I want to be very clear. We do so with humility and compassion. Christians are people who deserve this passage and who have been given life and joy forevermore. Anyone who deserves Revelation 15 and 16 and gets life and joy forever, should be a humble person. Salvation's a gift. You've received it. If you're a Christian, you've received it like the water receives rain. You've done nothing to deserve it. God's poured it out on you. And so when we, we think about God's wrath and judgment, we should say, this is good, but I'm going to be humble. It's not like I'm better than these people who are getting what they deserve. I should be getting what I deserve, and I'm not. We should also do so with compassion. We should have compassion for people. If you knew somebody who was heading here, Right? What would you do to rescue them? Consider this uh, quote by Charles Spurgeon. He's just so good sometimes. He says, if sinners be damned, let them at least leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, 
let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one person go unwarned and unprayed for. Guys, I know that talking to people about Jesus is awkward. I know that it's hard. I know that it, it, it kind of inconveniences your life. But when you think about this passage, it gives you the stakes. The guy in the other cubicle is going here. Do not let him go here unprayed for and unwarned. So, God's wrath flows from and reveals his glory. It is terrible, but deserved. Finally, we see here that it rescues his people and it gives them motivation to endure. Rescues his people and gives them motivation to endure. Again, you've probably noticed this passage has a lot of Exodus language. We've talked about Moses and the temple and the sanctuary. Don't forget, what, what was the whole point of the plagues in Egypt? What did God get glory in doing? Rescuing and delivering his people taking a people enslaved and oppressed, bringing them out of their bondage, putting them in the promised land. That was how God revealed his glory in Exodus. That's how he's going to reveal his glory here. It rescues his people. Notice also, again, the context of this passage is very important. It's not like the world's a nice place. They've been treating Christians very, very well for years. God's people are doing great. And then God just gets mad and does this. No, what's happened? The world's rebelled against God as, a, as an entire world. They've murdered, killed, imprisoned, tortured Christians. Most of them, maybe all of them. And that is when this happens. God's doing this to vindicate his people, to save them, to deliver them. After judgment comes glory. We all love a good movie about rescue missions. But what happens on rescue missions? The bad guys get shot. The hostages are going to be saved. The bad guys get shot. That's what we see here. God's saving his people. He's delivering them. He's bringing them to glory. He purifies the earth in judgment to make a new earth for his people. And if this judgment and this is going to vindicate you and bring you to glory and seal your fate to be the most happy and perfect, blessed person in the universe, then no matter what your life includes right now, you must endure to get there. God has given you this passage in part to help you endure. Look at verse. Th- look at the chapter 16, verse 13. This is the one time Jesus himself speaks in this passage. It's very interesting. It kind of just hops off at you. He says this, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. The original audience hearing Revelation 15 and 16 were a bunch of poor, oppressed, and persecuted Christians in Rome, and all they had to do to have a better life was compromise their Christian faith. Say, you know what? I'm going to say I love Jesus, but I'm going to offer sacrifices to the emperor so I can have a job. I'm going to say I love Jesus, but I'm just going to I'm going to go I'm going to go to that party I shouldn't go to because my my friends will be there and they'll they'll think I'm normal. And Jesus speaks here in the middle of all this judgment and he says, "Blessed is the one who stays awake." In the middle of a world 
that oppresses God's people, tempts them, right? If you endure, if you stay awake, you'll be blessed, you'll come to glory. And being awake means to be spiritually alert and spiritually active. Uh, In a different part of scriptures, in uh, the end of Matthew and Mark, Jesus says the same thing. He says, blessed is the one who stays awake. And then he gives this example of a master who leaves the house and leaves his servant in charge. And the servant who's awake is the one who's doing the master's will. The servant who's sleeping just does whatever he wants to. He gets drunk. He hang, you know, beats the servant. Like he's doing, doing his own thing. The servant who's awake right, is, is the one who's doing his master's will. And this passage, in part, is written to help you have motivation to do your master's will, whether that motivation needs to be scary or happy. Uh, you probably noticed that uh, there are typically two kinds of things that keep us awake at night. Now, there's many things that keep me awake at night, but there's two, two categories generally, all right? Things that terrify me and things that make me really excited. So uh, you're, you're, you're lying down to sleep and, you know, you're about to go to sleep, and then you hear screams and gunshots, all right? My guess is you're not going to sleep very well that night. You're going to be, whoa, you know, what was that? i got to go check it out. Um, likewise, if you have been looking forward to this trip, this work thing or whatever, for months, and you're finally the night before, you probably won't sleep very well either. And I think the idea of this passage is if this morning you need to be scared awake, God loves you enough to do that. And if this morning you need to be comforted awake, you need to to realize that the evil you're dealing with right now in your life is going to end that God is going to deliver you. He is going to help you, not just from your sins, but from your circumstances too. If you need that, God's willing to give you that. Whatever you need this morning to stay awake, to be about your master's business, he wants to give that to you. So wake up. Whatever you need, take it from this passage. So this is John's first take. We will actually see him describe this same reality three or four more times through Revelation. But this first take is very clear. God's end times judgment, his final judgment, but it reveals glory. It comes from his glory. It will be deserved and terrible, and it will rescue and deliver his people. And in light of that, let's hear 2 Peter 3.11 and try to take that into our lives. It says this, since all these things, these things in the world, are about to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for the scriptures that help us to know you truly and to not not worship a false god, a god we've made up in our heads. Thank you that you correct us and you correct our thinking and our lifestyles. And uh, we, We just pray the Spirit would minister to us. It seems, it might seem silly to ask you to minister to us through Revelation 15 and 16, but we pray you do so, and you comfort and encourage and enable us to stay awake. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.